0: Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bound. It's been 36 years since Tom Cruise dived and barrel-rolled across the big screen as Pete Mitchell, the daring fighter pilot enrolled in an elite flight academy for US naval aviators. Pete better known as Maverick, is back for another sky-high adventure. This time he's passing on the baton and has been charged with instructing the current Top Gun cohort. The group's task? Well, an near-impossible mission to incapacitate a new uranium refinery belonging to an unnamed rogue state. And among the young recruits is Rooster, the son of Maverick's ill-fated co-pilot Goose from the 1986 version. <laughs> New aviator shades and edge-of-your-seat aeronautics. There are flashy flight simulators and the fighter jets are sleeker, but the franchise has not grown a healthy dose of air punching nor topless beach montages. Well box office sales certainly seem to have taken off. It's the first time a film starring Cruise has broken the $100 million mark on its opening weekend. But are our critics as thrilled by the aerial exploits of our hero as the rest of the world? Well, I'm joined by the film critic for The Independent, Clarice Loughry, and by film critic and culture writer, Simran Hans. First of all, though, let's get into the mood. Everyone here is the best there is. Who the hell are they going to get to teach us?
1: Captain Pete Maverick Mitchell let me be perfectly blunt you are not my first choice you were here at the request of Admiral Kozanski aka Iceman he seems to think that you have something left to offer the Navy what that is I can't imagine
0: with all due respect sir I'm not a teacher just want to manage expectations And Simran, we'll come to you first. It's uh, lovely to have you on the show again. Now this has been seen as the sort of saviour of or the mother of all blockbusters this summer. And is it? Just how big is Top Gun Maverick?
2: So I saw this film on the IMAX and I can tell you, in IMAX, it is big. (laughs) Tom Cruise is here to save cinema. He's here to save America. And I'm here for it. I really didn't think that this film would be something that I vibed with, given that I actually haven't seen the original Top Gun. And I have no relationship with it. All I really knew about the first film was that it had Tom Cruise and there was significant gay subtext. So that's what I went into the film (laughs) expecting and looking for. Um, And I think you don't have to have seen the first one to really have an understanding of what's going on.
0: Yeah, exactly. I I like the threads you've drawn out of it there, Simran. Clarice, what about you? I mean, just how big did you find Top Gun Maverick and and maybe how does it achieve its size, if indeed you you feel it is as as big and bold as it says it is?
1: Well, <laughs> it's interesting <laughs> for a critic because I think we are so moved to intellectualize everything. There's so <laughs> many planes and they went so fast. Like I it is pure entertainment and I think It's okay to
0: value that. So Simran's driving straight into the subtext there. She's exploring the 75% of the Top Gun iceberg that's beneath the water, which is some of this glorious subtext that we'll come to later. But Clarice, how does it seem to you?
2: Well, I
1: have a very complicated relationship with the original Top Gun. I hesitate to call myself a fan, and yet I have seen it so many times that I think I know parts of it off by heart. <laughs> but the thing is, is that I watch it and I love it. And yet I recognize at the same time that, you know, the original Top Gun was one of the most effective and I would say potentially insidious pieces of military recruitment advertising that was ever created. I know that after screenings, the the U.S. Navy set up booths outside of the cinemas. And by the end of it, recruitment had gone up around 500%. <laughs> and so it's a very complicated thing where I recognize the joy of Top Gun, the pure adrenaline, the, the feeling of simmering of, inside of like cinema. This is Tom Cruise, and he's come to teach us what cinema is. And it's really hard to talk about the effect of Top Gun Maverick without being like, oh, the planes went zoom. It was so cool. <laughs> But then there's that part of my brain going, oh, but what's the end goal of this? Like, who is this being made for? And I get nervous and I get scared.
0: Okay, so you feel like if you're not careful, you're going to be starting to favour the epaulette and get some stripes on your cuff. You're going to be out there on on an aircraft carrier landing one of these things, Clarice. Is this what you're scared of? If you watch it another couple of times, you're just going to sign up?
1: Well, not for me, because I can't even drive a car. So I don't think even if I wanted to join the Navy, they would let me in. But (laughs) I guess on a a general moral level, there's some nervousness there. I don't know.
2: Well, I mean, we could talk about the politics of the film because, you know... You have Tom Cruise's character kind of coming in to uh, do this mission, as it were. And he literally throws out the rule book in the first kind of section of the film. And there are political implications of that, right? Of the middle-aged white man coming in and being like... I actually know best, and it's to go against protocol.
0: Yes, he, he, yeah, you're right. I mean, he literally throws the throws the manual in the bin. I mean, it's I don't even know whether that's that is sustainable as a metaphor, Simon. You're absolutely right. So let's talk about that. I mean, there have been a lot of sort of mutterings around the financing of the film Tencent, which is this big uh, Chinese investment firm. I thought had invested in it. It now turns out that they they pulled their funding because it, they read it as a as a sort of as too pro American, too gung ho. And although this is a sort of unnamed rogue state that they're going to kind of shoot down the uranium facility of people have kind of associated it possibly with 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 a far eastern regime so for you guys and simon as you brought up the subject let's start with you did it seem very obvious this was it was an unnamed rogue state but nonetheless one that we could probably put one or two fingers very close to.
2: I mean, I think the fact that it's an unnamed enemy and this sort of unnamed rogue state is entirely strategic and deliberate. I think the reason why they don't name it is because it allows you to kind of abstract this idea of who the enemy is. And it doesn't really matter what the kind of political or geopolitical implications are. It's just about goodies fighting baddies. And if you kind of streamline it down to that basic level then you don't have to think too deeply about things and you can just enjoy the kind of velocity of the ride I think that's entirely deliberate and I don't love that about the film and I think as well if we're thinking about it being kind of like geographically dislocated In the film, you have all of these incredible kind of desert shots and everything is empty. You never see people. You never see who's in the fighter jets that they're kind of trying to gun down. You never get a real sense of what the threat is and what the implications of that are. That's something that I find slightly troubling. Yeah, that's always been the most insidious thing
1: about Top Gun to me and they do this in the first movie as well, is the giving no face or names to any of the people that they're fighting because it creates this idea of, I guess, being a soldier where it's nothing about the consequences of your actions. It's just, hey, come to the U.S. Navy. You'll find a brotherhood here. It'll be cool vibes and bros and you'll get to fly planes and you'll get to feel powerful and like a man. But then you don't have to worry about what you're actually doing. Don't don't worry about that. That's the part that I find... Yes, kind of scary and quite insidious.
0: Yeah, so Top Gun, you know, the first one and Top Gun Maverick, this this, this Incarnation, I suppose it kind of it definitely picks a side and it picks the side of these kind of all American dudes. And Dudettes, I mean, this is now kind of, it's it's a much more kind of mixed bag of recruits that Tom Cruise's Maverick is in charge of at Top Gun. Let's talk a little bit about the rest of the cast. Miles Teller is Rooster. He's Goose's son. This is the guy that died in Maverick's arms in in the first instalment. And Rooster won't forgive. Maverick. Well I guess Clarice will ask you about this as you've kind of gotten seriously under the skin of the first the first installment of Top Gun. How true does this feel to you as a kind of as a bromance as a kind of quasi father son story or simply as as two airmen kind of going into battle together? Did you see this one coming? Miles Teller as Rooster?
1: Well I have to question whether a son Would look and dress exactly like his father because he has the mustache and he has like the open Hawaiian shirt. (laughs) Maybe that's a thing that I don't understand, but it didn't seem that realistic. I will say, though, the dynamic between them, it reminded me a little bit of like Star Wars Force Awakens this idea of creating nostalgia by revisiting like the relationships between characters. So there is a spirit of goose. At a spirit of Maverick, but it's matured a little bit and they've shifted it slightly for our modern era so that there's more. I think there's more tenderness to that relationship, which is what is is really nice.
2: I find it very interesting how that kind of central bromance, father-son dynamic that we're talking about here, how that feels so much more believable and something that you can buy into than the weird, extraneous romance with Penny, played by Jennifer Connelly, who's a sort of sexy, independent (laughs) barmaid slash sailor slash single mum. And we do get a kind of romance between her and the Tom Cruise character And a really odd sex scene. I don't know if either of you thought that that was a normal sex scene, but for me, I felt there was a lot of cross-fading. It was deeply unerotic.
0: Yeah, it felt a bit like a Zoom call in bed it was exceptionally chaste. I mean, Jennifer Connolly, She's a you know she she looks great. She's a great actress. She's kind of brings a sort of classy presence to what is a massive kind of testosterone fest, I suppose, as well. But yeah, that sex scene is is seriously seriously unsexy. Simmons <laughs> brought it up. Uh, Clarice, did this, what happened for you? Did the earth move?
1: Well, <laughs> the thing with the sex scene is the sex scene in the original. <laughs> is so much worse. But I think it, that also has a lot of crossfades in it, but it has also... Oh, it's got this weird... See, the the original sex scene is very, like, horny, but, like, not in a pleasant way. And it's interesting to see in the new film, it, t- it takes a lot of the elements of that sex scene, but it kind of desexualizes it because it makes it very chaste. I think, I think that says a lot about modern blockbuster cinema that they're like, "Mm, no tongue. There's a lot of tongue in the original.
2: I just don't really understand that arc of the film is there because it feels completely separate and unrelated to... Tom Cruise's kind of emotional arc in in the rest of the film it's all about him kind of trying to find redemption and forgive himself for this terrible thing that happened to his friend Goose when they were both younger and kind of seeing the ghost of his friend in his son and sort of having to deal with the emotional repercussions of that that is the emotional journey of the film so the extra romantic stuff it doesn't feel massively integrated into the rest of the film for me
0: yeah, no, it, it feels kind of weird. It's I suppose also it maybe it's sort of there to say Tom Cruise or Maverick isn't just a man who lives alone in a massive garage with an old plane and a locker full of memories. <laughs> He's still got it. He's still got it between the sheets as well, I suppose. I guess that's kind of part and parcel. I wanted to ask you both about about the vibe of the film, whether it sort of treats its sort of original material uh, and its kind of gung-ho-ness as slightly ironic. It's obviously deeply nostalgic, whether it's about planes and about male friendship and about all that stuff, as it is about America's place in the world. But what is, is it? Is it slightly silly? I mean, Tom Cruise is very good at delivering these kind of not quite epigrammatical lines when he's told, I don't like that look, Mav. He replies, it's the only one I got a couple of times. What is the kind of uh, the overall vibe, Clarice, of Maverick?
1: That's a really good question. I don't know if I have an answer to are they being sincere or ironic about this? Because (laughs) that's the question I have always had about the original (laughs) is do they know what they're doing, especially with the homoerotic stuff? I've always asked, did they know it was like that? Did they just discover when it came out? Oh.
0: they're like, oh, OK, this is this is this now.
1: <laughs> but it's interesting that in the sequel, they've like straight it's very non homoerotic. They've like very consciously, which makes me think it was not intentional because they've gone. Oh, nope. Can't have any of that in our movie. It's interesting. <laughs>
2: yeah. I, I yeah. felt that my understanding of the original, which, again, I haven't seen, was that it was a kind of camp classic in the Susan Sontag sense. It was unintentionally camp And so people have kind of deemed it so in its kind of afterlife. Whereas this one, I felt it was knowing and it was kind of winking back to how people perceive that original movie from the mid 80s. But it also was deeply convinced of its own importance. You can't get on with this movie or get anything out of it if you don't believe that Tom Cruise needs to save the world. And you want him to save the world. And to be honest, Tom Cruise, I want him to save me. (laughs) (laughs) i would trust him with my life
0: me too simran i've come to tom cruise very late i think but now i'm of the school of oh a little bit of mission impossible here and there doesn't hurt does it and certainly with this new top gun i'm like no wonder people have loved him for 35 years or something on the big screen he's sort of amazing and you know i don't even mind if he's sitting on a booster seat in his very fast aircraft it looks great to me and also how do you age like that there must be there must be a Dorian greyishness. There's definitely a portrait of Tom Cruise in an attic looking a little bit tired.
2: I feel like. I don't normally get starstruck ever, Um, you know, I have to interview celebrities as part of my job and so you just, you can't, it's not professional. But the one time I have been starstruck was when I did a red carpet and I had to briefly speak to Tom Cruise and I just completely started blushing all over my body. He looked me dead in the eye, he took my one hand in both of his and told me that I had a beautiful name. And he was much taller than I thought he would be in person. And he's got this magnetism and charisma that is unlike anything I've ever encountered. And he's really at the height of his powers in this film, I think. He's really kind of giving you all of his old school Hollywood charm.
0: Clarice, as a scholar of the original Top Gun and what you know, how different is Maverick played by Tom Cruise this time around? Does the character move on much at all? I mean, you, uh, you know, Tom Cruise may have just about got one wrinkle on his face in the 36 years since the original. But what about the character? Is he a more gnarled Maverick generally?
1: I think f- for me the difference, and this is the whole difference in in the development in Tom Cruise's career, is if you watch Maverick in the original, is the look in the original is very like hungry. I always think Maverick in Top Gun, he kind of looks, he's like a snake that's about to unhinge its jaw and just swallow somebody whole. <laughs> that's the vibe I get from OG Maverick. And I think there's something about Tom Cruise's career that over the years, he's recognized that intensity and he's harnessed it and he has a level of control over it now. So I I feel like it's matured, but in a very knowing way. And that's the Maverick that we see in this sequel is somebody who is much more sure of themselves. And yes, he, he does still take risks because it's Maverick. You can't have him just not take risks. But... He's so much more aware of what that means, I feel like. And that's where the fatherly aspect of it comes out. He's learned his lessons.
0: And I wanted to ask you both about Tom Cruise taking on the responsibility, really, of bringing this whole blockbuster to market and making it as big and fast and bold and slightly silly as it is. Um, I kind of love this. I've never been a huge fan of that kind of Avengers thing and all that CGI, but I like the fact that Tom Cruise is famous for doing as many of his own stunts as he can. And all of these actors and actresses were in these planes with their co-pilots, their real pilots too, affecting all these Gs and pulling all these Gs and everything that we see in this movie pretty much does happen in some sort of reality. I liked how this film really seemed real despite all the talk in the plot about needing not one but two miracles to complete their mission, because it's really done without all this CGI. Does it matter then, I wonder, that this feels like a blockbuster that's kind of hewn out of slightly real, solid rock, as Top Gun Maverick is? Does it kind of cut any more ice with reviewers um, than something from the Marvel verse, which is obviously meant to be impossible, it's superheroes doing superhero things, but does this feel more real and is it more satisfying because of that?
2: I mean, that's an interesting kind of way of delineating the two, because I think there are aspects of of Top Gun, like the sort of political subtext that we were talking about earlier that feel very kind of fantasy land, video game, like sort of separate from reality. However, I do think that the practical effects in this film and the kind of visceral nature of the action really gives it the edge and watching maverick push to match 10 and kind of zoom past a a physical limit and having the knowledge that tom cruise loves to do his own stunts and encouraged all of the cast to do their own stunts as well i think just gives it something special all of the the scenes of them flying where you kind of have the the camera in the cockpit they all had to kind of train and film that themselves and apparently they all threw up every time and had to like learn how to film without being sick while kind of acting at the same time. I really enjoy that bit of it. I think that makes the film feel really immersive and and really exciting.
0: Clarice, what about the fact that it's sort of dealing with, as we said, a sort of reality, that these real planes and kind of potentially real scenarios, did that kind of make it slightly unusual for a blockbuster these days?
1: Yes and no, because yes, it is increasingly rare for us to see actual sequences with things that we could touch being in them. <laughs> At the same time, what's so interesting about Top Gun Maverick to me is is the line that it crosses where it stops being a Top Gun film and it becomes a Tom Cruise film in the very modern sense of basically Mission Impossible. You know, that's become his whole brand is i'm going to keep doing more and more insane practical stunts until i die potentially doing one of the stunts <laughs> so it's is that's the thing that i keep coming back to is like where does this actually sit in the larger picture because do we treat it as this totally unique thing or do we place it within the context of this like tom cruise as star or turn narrative that's developing
0: Yeah, I like it. It's a point really well made, Clarice. I know what you mean. In fact, by the end of the film, I felt kind of nostalgic as well. And I really enjoyed that feeling. I found it phenomenally exciting and silly and all the things that it clearly doesn't mind being. But, you know, I've read think pieces also about the sort of geopolitical implications of a film like this in one of the papers at the weekend. And it noticed that Tom Cruise starts off in a plane that can reach Mark 10 and it's kind of like a test plane. And then he goes into his normal plane to fight the baddies. And then he ends up having to steal an F-14 Tomcat from the 80s, which was the plane from the original film. And then he ends up flying into the sunset with his love in this kind of World War II era Mustang. And I wonder if there's a third instalment, really, whether he's going to end up in a World War I plane kind of made of papier-mâché and balsa wood. You know, it kind of feels like this, this kind of America looking at itself in the mirror and seeing this diminishing empire. What do you, what do you guys think of that?
2: I totally have to agree with that reading. I think it's a rose-tinted, nostalgic kind of celebration of an America that doesn't really exist anymore. And it's a total kind of eulogy to that, really. And I think that's okay. Like, I think, for me, I really enjoyed this film in the moment of watching it. I definitely recommend going to see it at the cinema and kind of enjoying its full-throttle impact but the more i kind of think about it and reflect on it the more i'm i'm not sure it's the film to save cinema if this is the film that's saving cinema i think maybe we need to rethink things
0: all right so thank you both for the lowdown on top gun maverick so we're going to come to you now to discuss what this made you think of so tell us what you've chosen
2: well so another film that i think is playing with tom cruise's star persona is a a very different speed of movie. Um, Stanley Kubrick's final film, Eyes Wide Shut. Even if you haven't seen it, you're probably familiar with the masked orgy scene, which has been referenced and parodied in all sorts of pop culture. You've seen it in The Simpsons. You've seen it in one of the music videos by The Weeknd. And this film, which was released in the summer of 1999, shortly after Stanley Kubrick had died, you know, after he had completed the edit, is a really kind of interesting twist on the Tom Cruise personality. you know, So the film is based on a 1926 novella by an Austrian writer called Arthur Schnitzler and it's kind of satire, black comedy about the restrictions of the bourgeois marriage. It's set in Manhattan at Christmas time and it stars Tom Cruise as a wealthy doctor and Nicole Kidman as his wife, obviously. This was 1999, so they were married at the time and they would get divorced two years later. So there's like a layer of subtext where you can kind of project the failings of the central marriage in the film. Uh, You can project the kind of troubled marriage of Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman onto that. And basically, the plot of the film is Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman go to a party. She enjoys being flirted with. And then back at home, while extremely high, she goes off and delivers this incredible monologue about... Why he's not more worried about the possibility of her having an affair and he is so spooked by her having an inner sexual life that he doesn't know about and seems to have no interest in up until this point that he ends up going on this crazy odyssey that takes place in the middle of the night and it sees him going from a bar to a fancy dress shop and then to this mansion upstate, which turns out to be an Illuminati sex party. And the whole joke of the film is that despite being thrust into this really kind of kinky situation, he's actually too repressed to enjoy or kind of lean into any of it. And, you know, we know Tom Cruise to be this kind of boyish, handsome, exuberant, virile character on screen. And even if he's, like, not sexy, we kind of, we have that, image of him but in eyes wide shut it's really interesting because he's so stiff and uncharming and kind of unlikable in a way so uh, yeah if you're interested in seeing another side of tom cruise i would recommend this going back and watching this movie
0: it's been beautifully beautifully put what an amazing summation of eyes wide shut and the massive elephant in the room which is what is the tom cruise factor um thank you very much simran I'm curious, what have you chosen that's kind of a partner piece, not the opposite of Top Gun Maverick?
1: Well, I chose what I would argue was the Top Gun of its time, <laughs> which is uh, Wings, which was released in 1927 and then sort of re released several times up until 1929 when. It became, well, a lot of people call, is the the first Best Picture winner. There are actually two winners that year because they'd split the award. So it's. One was was Best Production for All the Elements Together, which essentially, I think, was the closest to recently when the Academy were trying to push this idea of Best Popular Film, sort of the equivalent of that in a way. And then there was another award for artistic quality, and that was The Uniqueness of the Vision, and that went to F.W. Mono's Sunrise. But Wings is, yeah, that is the thing that defines Wings, is that it is a massive, massive spectacle about <laughs> guys flying planes. So really, it's no different from Top Gun. And at its center, it has a love quadrangle, I guess. There's two pilots who are both in love with the same girl called Sylvia, but then Clara Bow plays this woman called Mary, who's she's also in love with one of the pilots, and then everybody goes off to war. And there's a lot of daring do and adventure and disappointment and and love lawning. And the interesting thing for me is that a lot of the conversation around Top Gun Maverick has talked about how this is so boundary pushing. It's doing stuff that's never been done before because they put cameras inside the actual cockpits and they had the actors use the cameras and film themselves. But they did that in Wings. And that's <laughs> that's the okay. interesting thing to me is that, oh, this was... I, and this is not a dunk on Tom Cruise at all. It's still incredibly impressive
0: that they did it today. But, hey, it's kind of already been done. Sorry. And that is all we have time for this week. Thanks to my guests, Simran Hans and Clarice Loughrey. And Monocle on Culture is, of course, produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Steph Chung-Goo, and Steph also edits the show. We'll be back at the same time next week. But until then, from me, Robert Bounds, thank you very much for tuning in.